Welcome to the Provoking Minds podcast brought to you by KU Learning and Development. My name is Laurie Hislop and before we start, I acknowledge the Darug people have been in this area where I am for thousands of years. I acknowledge all those joining us from the traditional lands of other Aboriginal or Torres Strait Islander people as well. And I'm here today with Sally Beasley to talk about language and inclusion. So welcome, Sally. Hi, Laurie. Thanks for having me. Well, Sally, it's great to be with you and to get started, let's share some background information about you. Sally is an EQM with KU Children's Services and an EQM is an education and quality manager. Just in case I slip into the jargon, I've defined it. So EQM, education and quality manager, great title, Sal. And this means that Sally manages 11 preschools and long daycare services across Sydney. That's right, Laurie, I do indeed. And so my role involves many aspects of supporting services, including things like financial viability, service delivery, and also supporting children, families, and the educators and staff at our services. My role means that I provide professional support to the services, to the directors and to the services on whole, and that I'm also um, the contact person for anything that should need some attention or that might happen. Um, What I enjoy about my role is that it's very diverse and that there are lots of different things going on. I like this idea of diversity. We've set the scene, Sal. You like diverse experiences. You like things that are a little bit different, maybe. You like the many different facets that your job allows and um, it's actually really necessary, but language and inclusion, what we're going to try and focus, we're trying to focus on that today. What makes you, because I know Sal, so she's going to let you in on this. Why are you the perfect person to talk about this? What makes you an advocate for this topic? Well, I guess what I can speak to today is lived experience. And so um, that is lived experience as not just an advocate for people with a disability, but lived experience as someone who does live with a physical disability. So I just want to also um, put a little side note in there. Whilst I can speak to being a person who lives with a physical disability, I can't speak to all disabilities. So I can't give you the lived experience, for example, of someone who lives their life using a wheelchair to help them with mobility. I think that's really important that we sort of have that as a bit of a sort of um, straight up footnote that I'll be talking today about my lived experience and the sorts of things that um, I can talk to around being a person with a disability may be different for somebody else who's listening um, today who might also have a disability that might be different to mine. So I think that's a really incredibly valid point. We tend to put disability or the idea of inclusion all into the one bucket, but you're living proof or or you can talk from the perspective that that's actually not the case. We talk very much about how everything's different and I'm hoping, hoping that you will actually really help us understand that a little bit better. Yeah, hopefully. <laughs> that's the aim of today. So I think for me it's, like we said, the aim of today is to try and have a look at Um, unpacking the language around people with a disability and even I guess the word disability can be um, a contentious one for people within the disability sector or people who live with a disability as well. Um, Some people don't like to say the word disability, some people like to say special need, additional need. Um, So I think the understanding that language really matters 
And I think why why it matters is that for me, I recall as an adult now, some of the the words or the things that were said to me as a child, um, particularly my first day of school, when I started school and my teacher said to me, how on earth am I going to teach you to hold a pencil so that you can write? All those years later, that stuck with me as my first day at school. And it wasn't that it was a mean thing to say. The teacher was thinking out aloud, I guess. But what I've kept with me, I guess, is that a part of my disability is a burden to other people. And that's where I think it's important to remember some of the language we use, either talking to people with a disability or about them, can sometimes come across as this person is a burden, how are we going to resolve this issue or this problem? I never thought about it like that, that as a person who doesn't identify as a someone with a disability, I hadn't thought about the fact that I might present as someone that your disability might be a burden on me. I hadn't, I hadn't thought about it like that. So keep talking. What? How, how would you get this message? I think for some... I've heard some educators referring to children with additional needs or a disability in their service. Some of the terms that we might hear could include things such as these children take up a lot of our time and it means two educators are working with these children and it leaves one other educator to deal with the other 28 children on their own. Can you see how that sentence, and it may well be true that two educators are needed at a particular time to support a couple of children and it might mean that one educator is left to run a group time with 28 children and not suggesting in the service on their own, no one else around, but that notion that by having those children included in the environment, that is a burden for those educators. And in fact, pushing that further down the line, that is a burden for those children in that room that may be in the same group as a child with additional needs. Yeah. Just the power of those, the word those children, or did you say those or these children? Yes, and it's othering. It's providing that othering already, that there is a difference, there is something different about the children with additional needs that is an issue, that is a, a, an additional add-on, if you like, Mm. to the everyday work that we do with children. And, yes, you know, under the Anti-Discrimination Act, every reasonable attempt is to be made to support the inclusion of someone with a disability. And so by nature that does imply that there may be a little bit of extra work you need to do, but that isn't always um, in the context that we see it in early childhood. It isn't always a burden. If we're already running a group time, that has um, a storybook isn't an extra burden to consider where you're placing yourselves to do that story if you have a child with low vision in your classroom and you sit with your back to the window and the book has shiny pages and you've got lights coming down from above your head, so multiple light sources, considering a child with a visual impairment, the location of that group time may not be really suitable and they might really struggle to see the pages of the storybook, whereas relocating the position of your group to the other side of the classroom with your back to a wall helps reduce one of those light sources for that child 
that's not an unreasonable adjustment that you can make in your setting. So sometimes um, I think people sort of go, oh, we've got to do all these extra things to include children, people with a disability. Sometimes it's something really small that could make such a huge difference to that child in your setting. And, and generally, isn't that, isn't that something we should be doing with all children, not just children with disabilities? I, I, I can hear what you're saying that for children with disabilities, there, there might be some really specific things you have to do. But there's a, a statement in the Early Years Learning Framework version 2 which talks about the perspectives of others. And I wonder whether that links here as well, something we can draw on as well, like considering the needs of the perspectives of others and assigning that to children with a, 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 a dis- I don't even know what to say. Am I allowed to say <laughs> disability? Can we use that? What would you What would you prefer? See, I I am of the camp that I don't I don't like the term disability because I think it implies a deficit, and so. Um, but then I also know it's common vernacular and so I sort of get a bit confused in my own mind. So if I can't decide what I like and don't like, I can't expect you, <laughs> you to decide for me. But I think it's, um, yeah, uh, let's just go with disability for today because it's a commonly used phrase. But I think the point that you talk about is that it's different for everyone. So maybe that's what maybe that's the central to this. And this idea of have a conversation with the children, the families that you are working with, and what terminology do they want to use? What terminology sits best with them? If we're talking about language and inclusion, how can our language help families, help children, help help people feel like they belong? Is, isn't that what we're trying to do? Yes, and being conscious of the language we're using, that even though it may be Um, a question we're asking um, or a request we're making of a family, that it may be in good intentions, it sometimes can fall really short and can sometimes cause distress. And so um, for me in terms of a, a person living with a disability, every time I go into the chemist and I've lived in the area that I live in for the last 10 years, every time I go into my local chemist to get something, the staff behind the counter always ask me, do you have a healthcare card? Innocent enough question, you might say, but yes, they're making a presumption that I have a disability, therefore I could well have a healthcare card. But I think if I've been going to the same chemist for 10 years and the answer has been no for the last 10 years, is someone not picking up on that? And so maybe through good intentions, they're not wanting me to pay higher prices for my medication, Hmm. but can it not be marked somewhere that I do not have a healthcare card? So is that it is a good intention, but it can sometimes cause upset. Yeah, and oh. it's not an unreasonable question to ask. Not at Any, all. Anyone, not at anyone. All. But I think what I heard you say there was the fact that you feel like you have a relationship with this this. Um, this pharmacy, this this place that you're at regularly. So mm. because you have a relationship with them, you hope they know a little bit more about you than if you went to a, a, a pharmacy in a different part of the world or oh, the town. Sure. Yeah. By all means, ask that question. But And I guess that's that assumption as well in terms of that, yes, I, I physically look like someone who has a disability. And so that is a reasonable question to ask. But it's also making a lot of assumptions. I think that's sometimes part of a, a problem as well is that 
again, through good intentions or not, um, people might look at me and see that I have a physical disability and assume that that means a deficit, that I may look like I have a physical disability, therefore I must also have or may also have an intellectual disability. And so people do speak slowly to me. I've been on an aeroplane with some friends and the, I was on the aisle seat and the hostess asked my two friends in between, the window and myself, would they like a drink? And, yes, they both ordered a drink that was alcoholic and it got to me and I asked for a drink that was also not just plain Coke. And um, the hostess looked at my friends and said, is she allowed to drink alcohol? And my friends said, ask her. <laughs> so, you know, it's that simple. Just ask her. <laughs> Can I say for the record, this is as slow as I've ever heard Sally speak. She usually speaks so, so, so much faster and I have to really keep, I have to, I have to work really hard to keep, keep up, up with her. So just for this podcast, Sally is speaking slower. This is not her normal. This is not me speaking down to you. <laughs> um, this is me trying to speak slowly so I can be understood. Um so, yeah, it's that that's really frustrating as a person with a disability as well, that it's assumptions are made sometimes. That, And so I've done a lot of things in my life to try and counteract that opinion. I have three university degrees and people might think, why do you need three? And I go, sometimes I don't know. But for me, maybe that's me in my mind saying, see, I'm not I'm not crazy, I'm not silly, I'm not stupid because I may look different. Um, I decided one year to challenge myself to run a marathon and I think for me that was me wanting to partially show myself that my body isn't as big a dud as what I think it is. It's not my body can actually achieve some great things and not just the marathon on the day but the training leading up to that marathon that I proved to myself that my body may have some deficits, but look what it can do. And so I think that sort of motivation almost spurs you on, with that you want to prove people's assumptions wrong. So, Sal, I'm interrupting, because if if you had a fan club, Sal, I'd be in it. <laughs> oh, look, I'll start signing you up, Laurie. Membership's $1,000 a day. Okay, well, I might have to rethink that. <laughs> See what I mean? She's fast. Like you're talking about the fact that your disability is quite... Um, it's visible. Mm. But you only have to um, wave hands with, with Sally or, as I mistakenly did, I asked her to <laughs> cut a sandwich, which was not the right thing to do. I, but, I, yeah, we've talked about that. She still she forgives me. Um, <laughs> there, It's not a hidden disability. I guess I'm, I'm not totally aware of how your vision issues are, are, are perhaps a little more hidden. But you don't really have hidden disabilities. Do you want to talk oh, a little about, about the opposite? What about the hidden and the not hidden? Yeah, I think the, the hidden disabilities are perhaps sometimes a little trickier for people to, to process in terms of um, I've worked with educators where we had children that were four who had an autism diagnosis. And so physically the child appears as a four-year-old that you know this child in particular I'm thinking of was very tall was quite a solid child and when this particular child had difficulties with self-regulation and you know would do things that would typically be associated with sort of an 18 month to two-year-old age group educators sometimes were like but 
you know, they're in the preschool room. Why why is he behaving like that? He's in the preschool room. That's stuff you see in the in the two to threes room or in the birth to twos room. It's helping people understand that sometimes a disability is hidden and therefore it makes it a little bit harder for people to go, oh, okay, so you have a, a neurodiverse child or you have a um, visual impairment. And not all people who have low to no vision have a guide dog or a cane and wear big, thick, black, dark glasses. And so sometimes if there's not a visual cue, if you like, for someone that this person has a disability, they're not in a wheelchair, they don't have a walking frame or um, mobility aid, sometimes those disabilities are a little bit more complex for people to understand. We've probably all been to shopping centres, restaurants and seen children that may look 8, 9, 10, having difficulties co- like self-regulating and so the parent is trying to co-regulate with that child and help to bring them down and you've probably heard people saying, oh, that child just needs to hear no or that child just needs a bit of discipline. What is a child that big doing chucking a tantrum? Because that child doesn't look like they could be neurodiverse, Sometimes, again, we're quick to judge from the outside. And so not all disabilities are visible and we also need to be quite conscious of that in terms of just because they look like they are typically developing children in our services, it doesn't always mean that that is the case. And what about children and how they might pick up on things that adults say? How um, attuned do you think children are, children with a disability are? How attuned are they oh. to the edge? Oh, okay. I've, I've okay. hit a nerve. I've hit a nerve. <laughs> I, I, I can tell. i aware. Like I, um, you know, you may or may not know this about me, Laurie. I'm, I'm a little bit, I was probably that naughty child at school. but oh, I can't imagine that. Can't imagine, no, no, absolutely but, not. So as a four-year-old, I decided I was going to escape from a hospital because why not? Why be there? I don't want to be there. It was boring. I was in search of lifesavers. Off I go, out of the hospital. I'd clearly been watching how the lift works. Down I went, out the door I went. And the next day, well, after they found me that particular day, not the next day, after finding me, my mum came in the next day to the hospital and she bought a whole collection of things with her, Play-Doh, paint, magazines, scissors, things to keep me, you know, occupied at hospital and that. The nursing staff said, oh, no, 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 we can't have that. Um, Mum goes, oh, right here. So you don't want to keep her entertained? You want her to escape again? No, 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 we won't do that. We told her it's naughty. Well, that'll work. That'll work, right? So, but I remember that discussion with the nurses, them saying it's naughty. And Mum saying, well, uh, yeah, but you might want to move her room number one to the other side around from behind the lift so she can't see people coming in out and watching the lift operate. So I think... I was acutely aware of that. I recall, um, and maybe a little bit older than what the children are that we work with, um, sort of vacation care, after school care, again, was a place that I did not love. I remember spending a lot of time in those settings on my own because, you know, children with a disability are a little bit different, so we say, and so children, you know, children aren't there to emotionally support other children. It's not their job to be the emotional crutch of other children. And that includes children with a disability. And so some of those places I spent a lot of time on my own. And I remember some of the after-school care um, educators sort of not really knowing what to do with me in terms of, you know, they just sort of go, oh, do you want to do Oh, you can't do that. Or 
do you want to do this? Oh, I, I don't know if you'll be able to do that. Or you know, even those sorts of statements of we've got something planned, but I don't know whether you'll be able to do that. Well, move out of the way, sister, let me give it a go. And I'll show you whether I can do it or not. Hmm. And so I've always been acutely aware of that. And it's something that you're tuned to. I remember last year at the ECA conference, Dylan Alcott, was, who was just amazing, um, and for me it was the first time I've seen someone with a disability reflected back at me in my profession, that Dylan Alcott was, a, and he, he's not even early childhood trained, right, but he was at an early childhood conference, and it's that representation that's also really important. Um, but he was talking around the time that he remembered as a child that he realised that he had a disability and he was different. And I remember that day as well, the day I realised that I had a disability and that I was different, I looked different to my parents, I looked different to my siblings, I looked different to my cousins, my grandparents, and it was a day I will always remember because you it dawns on you, hang on a minute, they don't look the same as I look. And so you're also, you've got your own real playing in your head about what you can and can't do and the language you hear yourself talk about yourself is equally as important. So if children are already hearing that inner monologue, if they're hearing it as an external monologue, that's compounding that image that that child has of themselves. So if we're seeing them and using language that projects to them a deficit model, that's the exact inner monologue that child is having. And I think that's really important as well, that, that the language we use isn't just external, it, it becomes internalised. So my guess is you've had people in your life who told you to have a go, who told you you could do it. That's my yeah. guess. She's smiling and laughing at me. Yeah. So I'm guessing <laughs> that sounds like I'm on, I've, I've nailed that. So you've had, you've been fortunate to have role models or people that you trusted and loved and be, who, who've believed in you. Yeah, I've had parents who I still have them, by the way, they haven't gone anywhere. Um, hi, Mum, hi, Dad. Hi, Mum, hi, Dad. Um, I have parents who would say to me, you know, your disability is not an excuse for you not to do something. I mean, look, like every child, I probably tried to say, oh, I haven't got enough fingers to make my bed. Um, I probably tried to use it as an excuse of some sort to avoid doing a job I didn't like. Um, but my parents never allowed that to be an excuse. So, you know, if I said I wanted to try, um, like all year three students, we had to learn the recorder. <laughs> I'm sorry. That's a bit funny. <laughs> I think it's probably the one time in my life I've been pleased to not have 10 fingers um, because I can't stand the recorder. And I remember the teachers sort of saying to me yet again, teachers scratching their heads yet again, um, well, I wonder what instrument you can play. What, what, so, did, you, what did you play? The piano. And so I had enough fingers to get across enough keys to be able to play a song. Um, and so I think my parents, you know, when I sort of said, oh, I don't really like the piano, I think I might want to try the glockenspiel or something horrendous like that, my parents were like, no, 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 you've said you're going to give the piano a crack. There's, you know, you've proven that you can play the piano, so let's stick with the piano and let's not be going out and getting a glockenspiel. Um if I wanted to try tennis, I wanted to try gymnastics, any of those sorts of endeavours that what you might call typically developing children wanted to try, then my parents were encouraging me to do that. As that sort of became teenager, early 20s, 
my parents rapidly started to discourage me from trying things because I I learned about risk, risk taking and wanting to take risks. And I would go, oh, I'm going to go on this holiday and I'm going to plummet down some mountain and do some whitewater rafting and do something else. And it upsets my parents when I say I want to do that. And I said to my dad one time, why do you get so upset when I say I'm going to go plummet down a mountain? And my dad says to me, because it took so much effort, so much energy and financial costs to keep you alive. We're not losing you by you doing something stupid. And that clicked for me then. Hang on a minute. I've lived my life in this little bubble of being told you can do what you want and do what you want. And I thought, what toll has that had on my parents? Every time they pushed me out the door and said, yeah, 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 you can have a go at that. What was, how was that impacting them as parents to see their child like, oh, you know, we're going to let her go to gymnastics and she may well lose grip of the bars and fall down and, you know, land on her head and end up in hospital. What, what were they doing on the sidelines? You know, that sort of grip on the sideline, like, oh, my yeah. God, what's she going to do? So that's when that hit me. That so uh, the fi- financial cost, cost, but but financial cost huge, but emotional cost is something we potentially aren't thinking about with when we're looking at families of with children with disabilities. And that sometimes when they come into an early childhood setting, it's the first time or one of the first times they've had a say in what goes on for their child. If they've been to medical professionals, allied health professionals, they're told you need to attend this appointment, you need to get this scan, you need to go to this therapist, you need to do this particular, take this particular medication. Lots of times they're told what to do for their child. And so when they come into our settings and it's the first time sometimes we say to them, what are the goals for your child? They're probably like, what? What do you mean I get a say in this? Um, So it's probably the first time that parents have had an opportunity to say, oh, gosh, you know what I'd really like my child to learn to do? You know, writing their name is probably not going to be it, by the way. Um, you know, to to learn to interact in a social setting. You know, they spend a lot of time in a hospital or they spend a lot of time in medical appointments. To be able to just have fun, hang out with other children their age. Um, I think that sort of emotional toll as well, that they come into our services and they go, oh, thank goodness, you care about what I think and you're not telling me what I should do with my child. And that was... Um, I remember my mum telling a story of when I was in hospital when I was first born, I spent the first five and a half months in hospital and I remember mum saying she came in one day and the nurse was like, oh, great news. We've managed to cut out one of Sally's feeds. She's able to hold on for a lot longer in between the feeds. So mum said, great, which night feed have you cut out? And the nurse sort of went, oh, no, 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 we haven't cut out a night feed. You know, we like to give Sally a bath in the middle of the night because it's very busy here in the NICU during the day. So we give Sally a bath at night. And so, you know, that's when she has a bottle. And my mum said, no, 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 no. (laughs) I'm not taking a baby home that wants to be bathed in the middle of the night. So let's rethink this and cut out one of the nighttime feeds and let's work on those daytime feeds. So when parents are experiencing that sort of lack of what's going on, to be able to give them that opportunity in our settings is a really powerful thing. Sally, I think we have to stop because while you're not getting emotional about all this, I'm finding it really quite emotional. And I, I, um, I can only say thank you so much for sharing your story. I want to give a big shout out to your mum and dad and your brother for being such great role they models. Great. They thank are great. So <laughs> and um, 
I think you're an inspiring educator. And I hope that in talking so openly about the, we're going to try and stick to language, but in, and hope and talking so openly about language and and that hidden message we have when we're trying to include children. I hope that we have challenged a few ideas. So, so thank you so much I, you. For, for coming. Um, Sorry to upset you. I'm not really upset, but I am just, I am, you know, I'm a bit teary. But I kind of, that story about that night feed and I, I, I think what we've done today is we've learnt that words really are powerful and there's this hidden meaning behind what we say, even even when we say it with the best of intentions. Mm. And the idea that children with a disability must have a deficit, I just don't think that's. No, that's, and, you know, I have a deficit in the number of fingers I have. I, I can't. I can't disown that. That's that's true. But I don't have a deficit in all areas. Not at all. And I like the, I think the other thing we need to remember is this idea that children do pick up on attitudes that mm. we have towards them. They are really attuned, great, highly attuned to verbal and non-verbal messages. They're equally powerful. Yes. So we have a we run a course at KU called Guiding Children's Behaviour in Practice. It's actually usually just called GCB in Practice. It's a, co- a course we regularly host that it might help you think more about this idea of inclusive practices and it might help with um, a mindset shift or help you think differently about what inclusion looks and feels like. Thank you. So thanks, Sal, for being here. And yeah. if you've in, uh, enjoyed this podcast, please share it with others and make sure you subscribe so you never miss it. an episode. I should have said, Sal, is there anything else in closing you want to tell us? No, just think carefully about the language you use and don't make assumptions. Ask questions. Don't just assume. I think that's a great way to end. Ask questions. Don't assume. Love it. Sal, thank you so much. Thanks, everyone. Thanks for listening.